0: back to Last Week in Medicine. It's April 28th, 2021. It's been three weeks since our last episode, so please forgive us for our negligence. Uh, I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I'm joined by Austin Rupp and special guest, Dr. Natalie Como. Thanks for joining us, Natalie.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I always listen to your podcast when I'm driving to Montana, so I finally get to be on it.
0: Last three weeks in medicine now. Yeah. Uh, So Natalie, for those of our listeners who don't already know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I am a hospitalist with the University of Utah group with Steven and Austin. I grew up in Kansas and then I did undergrad at Duke and med school at Creighton. And then I did med peds residency at University of Utah. Liked it so much I decided to stay on as a hospitalist. Um, So I just do adult hospitalist medicine at the university and then I work half time at a small critical access hospital in Montana called the Community Hospital of Anaconda. So I get to do my MedPeds thing up there and see both kids and adults. So I really enjoy doing both.
0: Yeah, what's it like moving back and forth from like an academic tertiary care hospital that has everything you need to a tiny hospital in rural Montana?
1: Very different, obviously. And I think each one kind of makes me a little bit better at the other one. So, when I'm at the university, I have all the subspecialists that are always teaching me things when they consult on patients, usually have learners. And so it kind of keeps you on your game in terms of teaching. And then when I go up to Montana, the hospital is 25 beds. And so the census varies a lot. It can be six, seven patients. I've had a couple of weeks where the hospital's full and I have 25 patients, which is kind of crazy. But it's it's an odd feeling to just be by yourself and kind of not having backup or people to talk things over with.
2: Hmm. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was at first, but then you kind of realize, you know, more than you think, and you can do more on your own than you realize. So if you're just kind of pushed a little bit, you just kind of handle things. And the other difference up there is there's actually a lot of elderly patients who just decline transfer and so i just say hey you know i'm not a cardiologist and i'm not a neurologist but if you really want to stay here i'll do my very best and so it kind of forces you to read and just try really hard to figure out the best thing to do
2: i think i'd be doing a lot of up-to-dating i mean i already do a lot of up-to-dating but like constantly (laughs) should i push tpa
1: a lot of up-to-dating. I have the ER doctors there to kind of bounce ideas off of, and they're great, so that's helpful. And then I kind of have my go-to, you know, cardiology fellow and neuro fellow that I just call and kind of get advice from, so.
0: It's nice. Good. And you, do you have an ICU that you manage up there too?
1: We do have two ICU-capable beds, and so I can kind of run an ICU light, you know, mm-hmm. DK with a drip, BiPAP, CPAP um, drips for, you know, hypertension or AFib with RBR. So, and I've taken some intubated patients. If it's kind of a complex pulmonary case, I send it, but if it's overdose, they're going to be intubated for two days, Mm -hmm. kind of people. So
0: cool. And how, how often do you get to admit children?
1: Not that often. Um, I go to deliveries when I'm there. So there's usually two to four deliveries a week. And so I go to all of those and, am available for resuscitation if needed. And then I would say for a week, I'm up there. I'll see one or two kids inpatient.
0: Hmm. Well, it's nice though that you still get to practice pediatric medicine.
2: And you're just on for like a week, right? I mean, you like go to the Airstream when you have some downtime, but uh, otherwise you're just like it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So like when I go up there, I have a travel trailer that I drive up and stay. Two blocks from the hospital and so i don't have to drive but i'm up there i just walk back and forth but yeah i'm on from 7 a.m monday to 7 a.m monday so obviously i don't have to be physically in the hospital that whole time but i'm kind of the point person for that whole week
0: it's pretty rad putting us I all like to it. shame yeah
1: <laughs> i feel lucky that both sides just agreed to let me do that and everybody's happy so it's good
0: nice all right, well, uh, we also have to talk about your uh a serious runner. How many marathons have you just straight up won? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've only won, uh, I think two, a trail run and then the Salt Lake Marathon when I was in residency.
0: As a resident, won the Salt Lake City Marathon. Uh, what, what was your most memorable race that you've ever done?
1: Ooh. I think probably, you know, I always remember the races where I was just in really good shape and like had a PR and felt really good about it. So there's a race called the California International Marathon that's in Sacramento. And a lot of people that are trying to run really fast or trying to go for the Olympic trials qualifying time, go there. So you can run with lots of fast people. So I did that um, my last year of medical school and ran my fastest time in the marathon and just barely missed the Olympic trials qualifier, but it was just fun to be kind of chasing that and trying to run really fast.
0: What's the that furthest is. you've run?
1: <laughs> furthest. Um I did a trail race last summer that was 100k. And that was the longest I've ever run, so it's like 62 miles.
0: Nice.
2: What is your daily schedule when you're on service at the U? That's what I'm interested <laughs> in. When do you come down here? When do you run like what is a day in the life of Natalie Como on service at the U? Unless it's a secret, unless you don't want people to know what you're up to (laughs) in the dark hours of the morning.
1: So I'm totally a morning person. I like to run in the morning. So I usually get up at five, drive down from Park City. I'll just kind of be, I park at the U and then I run from there just in case, you know, somebody needs me at the hospital. I'm not up in Park City. I'm down there. Um, So I usually just park there, do my run, shower really fast at the hospital and go work.
2: There you go. Every day? while the rest of us are sleeping. now (laughs) They're running or discharging patients. I remember you got the (laughs) discharge donut once at like 4 a.m. or something because you woke up, signed the discharge order that you knew was going to be okay from the day previous and uh, (laughs) no one could compete. So we don't do the discharge donut anymore, I don't think, but uh, good on you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I wish case management still did that. I was really (laughs) proud to win it that day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Natalie, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this week is because there was an interesting paper in uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine about hospital at home. And you've been working on a project like that here in Utah. Can you kind of tell us how you got interested in, in hospital at home?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the colleagues in our department knew that I was interested in rural health, and she had some folks that she knew in Boston that were very um into like studying home health and kind of implementing home or sorry home hospital i should say up in boston and kind of the next phase of their research was to try and see if home hospital would be feasible and safe in rural settings um and so i was kind of referred in that way because people knew that i liked rural health and this group wanted access to a rural population so utah was a good fit um and i've been kind of doing some like feasibility work and then some trials with actual sick patients doing hospital at home in a rural area of Utah.
0: Yeah, so you can tell us a little more what you're doing with the project and what you guys hope to accomplish there.
1: Sure, so our first phase was more just a feasibility test. And so they kind of had their processes for home hospital that they used in urban Boston. And we did three mock admissions with patients in rural Utah. So just kind of using the technology that they had and the processes that they had um, and then connecting with home health nurses here in Utah to kind of be our boots on the ground and go to patients' homes. So we did that and kind of learned some lessons from that about ways that we can improve it. And then we just finished admitting three actual sick patients. So we partnered with hospitalists and primary care doctors in rural Utah that would help refer us patients, like somebody they thought would be good for a home hospital trial. And then just last week um, finished with that third patient. So it was good.
0: That's awesome. Has it been a lot of work behind the scenes, recruiting and processing and being in charge of all that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the research team in Boston is great and has helped with a lot of the kind of work like that. but yeah, the recruitment took longer than I thought. And I think it's just because this home hospital idea is so new mm-hmm. that we reached out to a ton of providers and it took a while just to get referrals and get patients, but we got it in the end.
0: Uh I think I was talking with Devin Horton, who's a hospitalist in our group, and he he covers our group started covering a, a smaller hospital called Mountain West out west in Tuwila. And I think he was involved with maybe recruiting one of those patients. Is that was he was he helping with that
1: yeah we had a couple of primary care doctors around the state and then we also reached out to our group at Mountain West since Tooele is considered a rural area um, and so our two spots that we partnered with CNS and did the real admissions were Tooele and Monticello
0: Mm-hmm. right on well uh, Natalie is going to talk about this first paper um which was published on April 20th, I think, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, called Hospital at Home with Comprehensive Geriatric Assessment. So take it away, Natalie.
1: Okay, so the title of this paper is kind of long. It's, is Comprehensive Geriatric Assessment Admission Avoidance, Hospital at Home, an Alternative to Hospital Admission for Older Persons. So kind of the simple way to say that is basically does hospital at home versus traditional hospital admission, you know, is that effective for older patients? So, kind of as a background, they talk about how the COVID pandemic has accelerated the development of telehealth services, remote monitoring, et cetera. Um, and then a lot of patients, especially elderly patients, are a lot more comfortable at home than in a foreign hospital environment. And there are obvious risk factors and adverse events of being in the hospital that could be reduced at home, so like hospital acquired infections, delirium, falling if they're not in their normal environment where they kind of know things are, where things are. Um, So that's sort of the background, and they really focused on elderly patients in this study, whereas a lot of home hospital has included patients of all ages, so I thought that was a unique feature of this study. But their objective overall was to assess the clinical effectiveness of admission to home hospital for elderly patients, as opposed to traditional inpatient hospitalization. The design of this study, it was done fully in the UK, and they had nine different sites. They enrolled patients if they needed an unplanned hospital admission, so it couldn't be like a planned procedure or something, it had to be like an acute illness that they need to be hospitalized. And then they talked about how the patients could be admitted either from like an acute care or urgent care clinic, or they could be admitted from an ER, or they could be admitted from home if their home health team or primary care thought they needed acute care services. The inclusion criteria for this study were patients greater than 65 years old. They had to be willing and able to give informed consent and they had to speak English. In this study it was okay for them to not have a caregiver at home which is a little bit different than some other home hospital studies that i've seen and then the exclusion criteria were acute coronary syndrome they needed an acute care surgery consult suspected stroke end-of-life care which i thought was an interesting exclusion criteria um, or if they were considered too high risk for home-based care by the referring provider or if they had an unsafe home environment either unsafe for them or unsafe for staff coming into their home. So once they were enrolled, they were randomized to traditional hospital admission or hospital at home. And they do talk about in this paper, and I think it's important to just describe like from a simple perspective what their hospital at home program looked like. So once a patient was recruited from one of these sites, they had the home hospital team assess the patient within two hours. So they would meet them at their home do a history physical and kind of do an intake. The home hospital team was multidisciplinary. So they had an attending physician, home health nurses, sometimes nurse practitioners, physical therapy, occupational therapy. They did daily virtual rounds with the patient. So they said that was either with the attending geriatrician or with the nurse practitioner. They had home oxygen available, home IV meds available, and then for radiographic studies, if they need a chest X-ray or whatever, they would prioritize those as if the patient was in the hospital and they this home hospital program would provide transport to take the patient from their home to the hospital, get the study and then go back home. So that was kind of what it looked like. Um, the primary outcome they were studying was were the patients living at home at a six month time interval? So six months after this hospitalization, were they living at home or not? Um, They had some secondary outcomes as well. And most of these were also measured at six months. And these ones that I'll list off all had standardized, you know, objective scales that they were measuring. So they looked at cognitive impairment at six months and they used the MOCA score for that. They had scores on how independent they were in their activities of daily living. They had a comorbidity score. They looked at readmission rates um, to the hospital or transfer to the hospital. So if the patient was admitted at home and they got sicker and had to be transferred. And then they looked at length of stay and at delirium using the CAM method, that confusion assessment method um so most of these were six months say the book at somebody at 12 months too and then the delirium they looked or they measured the delirium at three days five days and one month so this study had 1055 patients that were randomized which i actually thought was a, a huge number and really good because a lot of the home hospital studies are super small um like the one we did had three patients um yeah and some ones that you look at had like 20 patients so a thousand patients is a ton of patients Um, and they randomized them in a two to one ratio so 700 were hospital at home and then 355 were traditional inpatient hospital they did lose a good number to follow up Um, so in the end what they actually had for like study numbers was 482 for home hospital and 243 for traditional hospital They have a nice table about baseline characteristics, which I thought they looked very well matched in terms of age, presenting problem, diagnosis, their degree of cognitive impairment at admission, how independent they were with ADLs at admission, and then a measure of their overall health and comorbidities. So moving on to the results, the mean age of patients in this study was 83 which also was kind of impressive to me, like these are very elderly patients. Um, So I thought that was important. Um, One thing that they mentioned was 37 of the patients who were randomized to home hospital actually got admitted due to a decline in their health. So, you know, 37 patients who initially were at home actually had to just go inpatient. Um, and then the average length of stay for each group it was a little bit longer in home hospital so there's it was an average of 6.8 days versus 5.4 days in the hospital and then going back to those primary and secondary outcomes the primary outcome was living at home at 6 months and there was no difference between the two groups there were several secondary outcomes that also had no difference so there was no difference in death at 6 months all those ones i listed already like cognitive impairment activities of daily living etc had no difference the only one in their study that was different between the two groups was the risk of living in a long term residential care facility at 6 months and 12 months that was less for home hospital and it had a risk ratio of 0.6. And then the risk of transfer to inpatient hospitalization at one month was higher for home hospital and the risk ratio was 1.3. So that kind of is the study in a nutshell. Um, My overall thoughts on home hospital is that it's a really cool concept that technology makes possible. So technology being like video visits and remote vitals monitoring, there's a lot of new technology in those areas. Um, looking at this study and other ones that I've seen for home hospital, there's kind of minimal or variable results for specific outcomes like mortality, rate of infections, falls, etc. cetera. Um, But after I've done some work with home hospital, I think what's more important is just demonstrating that home hospitals not inferior to inpatient care Um, because the biggest thing I've seen is just that patients and caregivers love it and are so appreciative um, of this option that if it can be safe and effective and at least equal to inpatient care, I think that like patient satisfaction piece is, you know, the biggest thing in my mind.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, we reviewed a a paper, I think from that Boston group last year, January, 2020, also in the annals. And that was kind of my main takeaway as well was, you know, if it's safe, if it's as safe as inpatient medicine, then I'd have zero problems with keeping people at home. Cause I think that's always better for the patient if you can do it. Um, And in that paper, they were looking at a primary outcome of cost and they did show that it was cheaper, excluding physician labor. It was cheaper if you, if you kept people at home, but it's like, okay, that's not the outcome that matters to me that much. I just want to make sure that patients are still getting good care and that, yeah, that they're safe at home. And in this study where they actually showed that patients were less likely to be in a nursing home at six months and 12 months, like that's an outcome that really matters to patients, right? Like no one wants to go to a nursing home from the hospital. And if you can keep them at home that whole time and have people coming to see them in their home, you know, therapists, nurses, et cetera, and adapt to that environment so that they can stay there. That's huge. And so I thought that was like the most exciting finding in this paper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree that it can be great for patients. And i think the things that i've also learned doing this home hospital work are like things i've thought about more is i think it really takes a lot of effort from an institution like up front to make an infrastructure for this because you have to like partner with home health nurses kind of get a team together and then kind of formulate the emr so that as providers we can see everything that we need to see because if I've done, as I've done these home hospital admissions, you're kind of relying on the home health nurse to tell you verbally, like I give them a verbal order and say, okay, let's give their Lasix twice a day, but there's no like mar to look at to make sure that the patient actually got it. Um, I can't like look over my orders, you know, I'm just saying verbally like, hey, keep them on these home meds and whatever. Um, So there was kind of like, as a hospitalist when you're used to seeing all of that information right there in epic it made me kind of uncomfortable so i think like that's going to be a big thing that has to happen is just getting the emr set up so that you can see their meds you can put in orders that the nurse can see um you know the way that we did labs was the home health nurse would draw them they would take the blood to the hospital they would get the result and then they'd fax it to me so it was kind of like you know, getting information from a lot of sources and it felt messy and it felt kind of error prone, but I think that could be easily overcome. It just takes a lot of like upfront infrastructure work.
0: Yeah, we can't be using fax machines, that's absurd.
1: (laughs) You can actually get faxes on your phone, like through the Doximity app, which I didn't know, but I learned. Um, So yeah, it came through my phone, but still it was like kind of getting information from a lot of random sources and yeah, as a provider. I think
2: think logistically, there would be tons of things that you'd sort of just have to figure out as you went along a little bit. Like it's a great concept in, in theory. And I think like Jenkins said, the outcomes that patients care about are highlighted and important. Um, But yeah, there'd just be so many questions of like, how do we do this? How do we do that? You know, what does this look like? Like how many phone calls am I getting per day? And I think there might be a little bit of inertia against that at first but i think if you were able to overcome that and had data like this and pilot programs like yours natalie um it would be great to to look into further i wonder also what you know sort of they they talk about inclusion and exclusion criteria it looked like the vast majority of patients or not the vast majority but almost 50 percent of patients had infection which does seem like the ideal diagnosis you know it's a cellulitis or a pneumonia or something relatively straightforward um, that vetting process or sort of what that looks like could also require significant leg work up front but yeah i think if you again overcome the initial inertia against it that's still a great idea
1: yeah and that's something that i've thought a lot about too is like as a hospitalist it makes you a little bit nervous if there's any uncertainty about the diagnosis and they're going mm-hmm. home so I think like, having a pretty straightforward diagnosis and a pretty straightforward plan um, is important going into this. And so I think the entry point for home hospital matters because like I'd be a lot more comfortable carrying out a plan if the patient was worked up in the ER and had all this stuff done and then they go home versus if they're at their home and their primary care doctor says, oh, you're up so many pounds, like let's keep you home and diurese you. Like that just makes me a little bit less comfortable. you know. Yeah, I think that
0: other paper we reviewed last year, I think they they were coming through an emergency room and that's where they were uh, enrolled from. And so, yeah, they already had like baseline labs and imaging and they had a diagnosis and a plan. And so then at that point, it was like, do we admit to the hospital or do we admit to home? And I agree, that would make me feel a lot more comfortable. And it is interesting looking at what people were admitted for in this study. Like Austin said, they they say 45% had an infection. And when you look at the breakdown, it's like only 7% had like a respiratory condition, including infection. So it wasn't like a ton of pneumonia. Only 3% had a urologic problem, including UTIs, which to me was like astonishingly low. Like maybe Britain is just way better at not treating fake UTIs (laughs) than we are because it's like you would think that would be a bigger chunk. And then only 2% had skin conditions, including cellulitis, which I was like, that. Seems like your ideal patient to admit at home is someone with just like subcellulitis. Someone can check on it every day. You you can do IV antibiotics for a couple days. Um, but if you, if you look at the the breakdown in table one, it's thirty seven percent of these patients were admitted for acute functional deterioration. Um, which, you know, is a term that I think I need to use more often in my notes, because we admit people for that all the time. But I feel like I've never had the right vocabulary to describe it. (laughs) Like, this is a nice old person. They are declining. They need to come into the hospital because it's safer, you know, or do they, (laughs) or do they? (laughs) So, and then 21% of them had a fall, which also is an interesting thing to deal with at home, right? Because You know, why did they fall in the first place? Was it because they have rugs in the wrong place or they have, you know, they need some rails in their house. So if you actually take care of the problem at home, you can try to fix those problems to prevent them from having another fall. So I I do think they targeted, you know, you know, the right issues for these older patients. It's it's astonishing how old they were too. The average age was 83, right? So these are pretty elderly folks. And the majority of them had some cognitive impairment. 72% had a MoCA less than 26. So that to me was also surprising, you know, trying to manage some elderly people with, you know, some early or likely dementia at home like is a challenge, but it seemed to work pretty well.
1: Yeah. The only other thing I've thought a lot about with this home hospital model is just the burden of travel on providers. Like When we did this trial, it was a remote physician visit, and so it wasn't a travel burden on me. I just did a video visit, but especially with rural home hospital, just thinking about the time it takes for the nurses to drive all the way out there and do their visit, and sometimes they were doing it twice a day. So it's just a question in my mind like a cost question of, you know, if a nurse can have six patients in the hospital Mm -hmm. at the regular hospital, can they also? use that same amount of time and see six patients in their home. Um, So just kind of another interesting thing to think about if this was going to be implemented outside of an urban setting.
0: Yeah, we need uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan to get us more rural broadband, and then we can get all the nurses a Tesla.
2: (laughs) And I wonder if, you know, from a provider standpoint, does that mean you're just in a bank of computers, like doing various you know, video visits and like telling the nurse, like, you know, stick like push down on their, on their shin, see how much edema there is. You know, like it's like those stupid little ACLS things you're doing. Like you hear crackles, you know, lub, dub, lub. (laughs) But, um, I think it's, yeah, more, more to come probably, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've thought about patient, like provider satisfaction too. I enjoy running around the hospital, like talking to lots of people in person. I don't personally think I would like sitting in front of a computer and doing telehealth visits all day but I can imagine some physicians would like that. And so it just has to be a good fit from the physician side too.
0: I do think home visits could be fun, but like you said, that's still, you know, huge time issue and yeah. So, well, thanks Natalie for, for walking us through that paper. That's super interesting. And I look forward to hearing more about the stuff you're doing here in Utah. Uh, I think Austin's got our next paper. you want you want to tell us about that one, Austin? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to talk about a paper titled "Renin
2: Angiotensin Aldosterone System Inhibitor Use and Mortality in Pulmonary Hypertension: Insights from the Veterans Affairs Clinical Assessment Reporting and Tracking Database." Also a long title. Uh, this was by Lam and colleagues and was published in Chest in April 2021. We thought this was important because pulmonary hypertension is a very common complication of cardiopulmonary and systemic disorders that has significant morbidity and mortality, but that directed therapy is only available to a small subset of patients with type one pulmonary hypertension. The authors point out that the pulmonary hypertension is particularly problematic in a veteran population. And anecdotally, I feel like a significant proportion of our patients also have pulmonary hypertension secondary to their um, cardiopulmonary disease, and that we don't really have much to do for it. So uh, piggybacking on that, there are no specific therapies or are available to group two or group three pulmonary hypertension, which are pulmonary hypertension due to heart disease and lung disease, even though mortality is similar to or even worse than, than group one pulmonary hypertension, PAH, which we do have therapies for. So the Renin angiotestin aldosterone system or or RAS inhibition is an accepted and effective treatment for HEFREF and systemic hypertension, and we think that it exerts protective effects on systemic vasculature and LV myocardial remodeling. It was hypothesized that RAS inhibition may prevent the development of pulmonary arterial hypertension or or group one pulmonary hypertension and may attenuate its severity, but it's still unknown if RAS inhibition is clinically benefit for other groups of pulmonary hypertension and and RV function. Given that RV failure is the final common pathway for all forms of pulmonary hypertension, hypothetically targeting RV function may be beneficial across all forms of pulmonary hypertension. So this was a retrospective cohort study investigating the relationship between ACE, ACE inhibitor, ARB, and aldosterone antagonists, so ACE, ARB, and AA um, medications in patients with pulmonary hypertension in the Veterans Affairs Clinical Assessment Reporting and Tracking cohort, also called CART, So CARD is just one of these large databases that the VA maintains. Um, It's a a collection of veterans who underwent right heart cath at VA medical centers since 2005, and this study included all of those um, with a mean PA pressure greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury, and then the patients had to have filled, to to fit the exposure, they had to have filled an ACE, an ARB, or an aldosterone antagonist within 90 days of the right heart cath they were excluded if they died or were hospitalized for greater than 60 days within 90 days of the right heart cath. Uh, they did a lot of adjustments. The covariates including de- included demographic characteristics, socioeconomic status, health behaviors, comorbid health conditions, and co-medication use. They talked about how they adjusted for all of this stuff. Um, there were several different analyses, including... Um, disease severity in which the pulmonary artery wedge pressure was used, um, whether or not they were inpatient during the right heart cath and their BMP. They they tried to adjust for pretty much everything that they could. The primary outcome was rate of all cause mortality, which seems like a good one. So there were 24,421 patients included. They were um, fairly well matched. Um, They had a mean age of about 67 years old. Greater than 95% were male, and they were mostly white. They also had a lot of comorbidities. Um, they were overweight, obese, or smokers. Greater than 60% across the board um, on those three comorbidities. Um, you know, some of the comorbidities probably deserve a second look. Like 90% of the aldosterone antagonist users had heart failure, and um, you know, kind of you can delve into table one. Um, and peruse that for yourself, but uh, the mean follow-up was 3.6 years, and they had a total follow-up of 86,632 person years. So, Basically, you know, sort of jumping forward to the results, there were 10.9 deaths per 100 person years in the ACE-ARB users versus 14.1 deaths per 100 person years in the non-ACE or ARB users. So that's a 35% versus 41.2% mortality. Um, Regardless of the adjustments and the analyses, ACE and ARB use was associated with lower mortality. It improved survival in both the adjusted survival analyses and the propensity match cohorts, which I didn't really talk about, but they did, again, several different analyses where they looked at the full group and they did propensity match patients. And then they did a bunch of adjustments within those two broad categories as well. Um, the, there was an 18 to 20% reduction in the hazard of mortalities in these series of analysis that was not dependent on dependent on demographic health behaviors, comorbidities, or co-medication use. And the relationship was also unaltered when accounting for potassium or BNP levels, inpatient status, and the wedge pressure. And then they also pointed out that there was lower mortality in a small subset of patients with pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension among ACE and ARB users. So again, sort of any way you sliced it, ACE and ARB use was associated with lower mortality in this cohort of pulmonary hypertension patients. as far as the aldosterone antagonist use goes that was not the case so there was 13.1 deaths per 100 person years in the we're just going to call that the spironolactone group because that's what it was so 13.1 deaths per 100 person years in spironolactone users versus 11.8 deaths per 100 person years in non spironolactone users so that's 39.2 versus 37% and spironolactone use was associated with increased mortality in some of these analyses but it was affected by adjustment in various models and sort of the 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 effect size was nine to twenty-four um, percent, depending on which model you used, and then the weakest association that did that made the the findings not statistically significant was when you adjusted for severity of illness. Um, so, Aces and ARBs were good; they kept people alive. Aldosterone antagonists were not so good, and actually made it might have killed people. But the authors poo-poo that and say, "Don't worry about that." Um, Overall, you know, this was a large data-driven observational study, so you know, some of that's good, some of that's bad. It was it was observational and retrospective, so there's lots of opportunity for, you know, confounding. Um, however, they did try to adjust for all of those things as as much as they could. Um, this group also published that H2 receptor blockers are associated with improved mortality. I'm not totally sure how that makes sense, and kind of makes me wonder what's going on here? Like, are they just fishing for statistical significance and, you know, trying to get large data subsets and find whatever they can? Um, I don't think that's the case here. Like this physiologically makes sense, but I don't know how H2 receptor blockers would. Um, And then I thought, you know, this is all invasively confirmed pulmonary hypertension. So it's patients who have had a right heart calf, and I'm not sure, you know, how applicable that is in general to our practice, as it seems like most of our patients do not fit that billing. You know, they sort of have an echo that shows an elevated RVSP, and it's like, yeah, they probably do have pulmonary hypertension, but it'd be interesting to see if this, you know, could be replicated in folks just with echoes or, you know, sort of different diagnostic tools used to diagnose the pulmonary hypertension. But I think at the end of the day, for me, you know, ACEs and ARBs seem good and might represent. Uh, an opportunity for like an RCT to see if we, you know, have anything that we can effectively use against all comers um, for pulmonary hypertension. So what do you guys think?
0: Uh, Yeah, I thought this was interesting. When I first started reading it, I was a little bit skeptical that, you know, kind of like you alluded to, like, is this just like a gigantic data set? And they're just looking for, you know, some kind of a correlation here. But um, I do think, you know, overall, the numbers are fairly compelling for the ACE and ARB. Um, and I thought the most interesting section was this, this smaller cohort of people with pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, because when I hear pulmonary hypertension, those are the people I'm mostly thinking about because we're kind of so used to these group two and these group three pulmonary hypertension folks, especially group two, right. Where it's mostly driven by left-sided heart disease, um, of course, they're going to get better on an ACE and an ARB. We already had trials that showed that. And if you look at the, you know, the characteristics of these patients, like 70% of them have heart failure. And so you would hope you'd see improvement with an ACE and an ARB in, in those patients. Uh, and then 90.6% um, of patients had essential hypertension. And, and that's like the whole group. And so Definitely, if you're comparing two different groups of patients with hypertension, you would expect the ones with aggressive therapy like ACE and ARB are probably going to have better mortality outcomes. So I'm like, yeah, so sure, ACE and ARBs are good. But then when you look at this smaller cohort of just those precapillary pulmonary hypertensions, more of a group one flavor of patients, there's 2,875 of them with a PA pressure over 25 and a wedge less than 15, they still had a mortality benefit. So I think that's the group that I would want to hone in on if I was going to do a randomized controlled trials, just look at those precapillary folks. Um, and then like you mentioned, Austin, the spironolactone group did appear to have worse outcomes, but I do think you could chalk that up to confounding by indication, right? Because sicker patients are going to get put on spironolactone, you know, this is your the medicine you add after your beta blocker, after your ACE and ARB for heart failure, or this is the medicine you're using in cirrhotics, which there were a fair number of those in this group too. And, and obviously people with cirrhosis just aren't going to do as well as people with healthy livers. So I think, yeah, the, the aldosterone antagonist part of this was interesting, but maybe ultimately kind of just a distraction from the main findings, which is that ACE and ARBs are, are, are good in people with, with cardiopulmonary disease. So, yeah, I thought this was this was interesting and um you know, would definitely be interested in in uh in seeing more of a prospective approach on that. Here here. So, uh thanks for that, Austin. Did you have anything else? I mean, I thought that that annals paper that
2: was the five or four or five recommendations about antibiotics was worth mentioning Uh Um, basically shorter is better (laughs) i mean sort of the the authors go through and took you know guidelines and the most up-to-date information and made a couple recommendations about antibiotics Um, while we're talking about it, I'll just throw them out there. So they say limit antibiotics to five days for treatment of COPD exacerbations with bronchitis who have signs of a bacterial infection. They say treat cap with antibiotics for a minimum of five days. They say in women with uncom- uncomplicated bacterial cystitis, use a short course of antibiotics, which is macrobid for five days, Bactrim for three days, or one dose of phosphomycin. They talk about Pylo, but I'm not sure I totally agree with that, so we're going to skip that. And then for <laughs> non-purulent skin and soft tissue infection, they say use five to six days of antibiotics. Um, it was just good food for thought to read that one, I thought I think, Um And, you know, I think they actually sort of over, overdo it on the pilo, but the other recommendations seem pretty much in line with what we've talked about previously. And, uh, you know, shorter is better a lot of times.
1: How long did they say for pilo?
2: Well, they say, um, like 14 days of a fluoroquinol or 14 days of a, fluoroquinolone or a cephalosporin. Actually, I didn't even write it down to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, it seemed a little long. Oh, and here, I do have it. An uncomplicated pilo, treat with a short course, five to seven days of fluoroquinolone or Bactrim times 14 days. So the, the Bactrim times 14 was a little puzzling to me actually. And then if you look at up to date, they say five to seven days of a fluoroquinolone, 10 days of Bactrim or 14 days of a, of a beta-lactam. Um, we anecdotally use more beta lactams for shorter based on what our stewardship folks say. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, anecdotally, it seems like that does the trick a lot of times. And I think we're moving away from fluoroquinolones across the board. So continuing to treat Pylo with fluoroquinolones seems to be falling a bit out of favor. So those were, that's what they said. And that, those were my issues, but still probably reasonable to follow, at least be aware that these exist and to follow them
0: um, because the evidence supposedly supports it. Yeah, I think it's good to know those numbers just off the top of your head because it's kind of more empowering for doctors to feel like they don't have to treat forever, right? And expose your patient to more risk. And so I think especially if you're working with, you know, med students and house staff, that's one thing I try to hammer in while we're on together is, what are appropriate intervals of antibiotics? Let's not overdo it. Um, cause not all of them are going to become internists and infectious disease doctors. And we're not the only ones prescribing antibiotics out there. Yeah. So. shout out
2: To or plug to Brad Spellberg, who's on Twitter. He has his own website, which might just be, it's Brad And he has like a, a tab that, you know, shorter is better and all the supporting evidence for it. So if, listeners are interested, check out BradSpelberg.com and the shorter is better tab for supporting document, you know, supporting evidence for short durations of antibiotics.
0: Look at us providing free advertising for Brad Spellberg. <laughs> All right, cool. Phrologist. <laughs> so, uh, now it's time. Uh, yeah, it's my turn, I guess. So I, I wanted to talk about this this weird vaccine induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. I, I I kind of avoided it for a while, but there's just more and more stuff getting published on it. So I felt like it was it was worth uh, looking at a little bit closer. Um, you know, I think we've been hearing reports for months now about weird clots, and you know, the Twitter sphere had lots of feelings about this, and everyone was kind of poo pooing it initially, like "oh, big deal, a few clots here and there." COVID causes clots too, but the actual, you know, case reports and in, in pathophysiology is fascinating. And I think it's worth looking at, um, because it's something people should be aware of. Um, so, you know, at this point, there's been over 400 million people vaccinated for COVID-19, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, and, and we're doing pretty well here in the United States. I believe we passed over 200 million now. And there are four vaccines available for COVID-19 right now. There's the Pfizer and Moderna, which came out first. um, And there are these mRNA vaccines. And that's the majority of people in the United States have been getting that one. And then AstraZeneca came out with a a vaccine and Johnson & Johnson. uh, They both developed a vaccine using recombinant adenovirus vectors. They use different vectors, um, but it's kind of a similar concept where this vector encodes the SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein. And AstraZeneca has kind of been the preferred vaccine over in Europe. And that's where we first started hearing about this stuff. And so um, back in April, or so, April 9th in the New England Journal, there was a case, kind of the first case reports published on five patients in Oslo, Norway, who presented with venous thrombosis and thrombocytopenia about seven to 10 days after getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. They were all healthcare workers, ages 32 to 54. Four of the five patients had severe cerebral venous thrombosis with intracranial hemorrhage, and this was fatal in three of them. Uh, One patient also had extensive splanchnic vein thromboses. So kind of weird clots. Um, All the patients had very high levels of antibodies to PF4 polyanion complexes, which is the same antibody that you see in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And none of them had had heparin exposure prior to developing thrombocytopenia and these thromboses. Another case series of patients in Germany and Austria was published on April 9th in the New England Journal. And this included 11 patients ages 22 to 49 who pre- uh, presented with severe thrombocytopenia with a, a median nadir of 20,000 and unusual thromboses five to 16 days after they were vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So nine of them had cerebral vein thromboses, three had splenic vein thromboses, three had pulmonary embolism, and four had other thromboses. One of the patients uh, presented with intracranial hemorrhage and six out of these 11 patients died. uh, And they were only able to test serum on nine of the 11, but they were all positive for PF4 antibodies and quite positive, the numbers were high. So then another case series of 23 patients in the United Kingdom with thrombosis and thrombocytopenia after AstraZeneca vaccine was published in the New England Journal on April 16th. So that was a week after and most of these patients had cerebral uh, venous sinus thrombosis and 22 out of the 23 had positive pf 4 antibodies by elisa so those were all patients who got the astrazeneca vaccine what about johnson and johnson because that's the vaccine that you know is available here in the united states that that people have kind of been freaking out about so on april 14th uh, the New England Journal published a case report of one woman who got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and 14 days later presented to the ER with abdominal pain. She had a platelet count of 13,000 extensive splenic vein thrombosis and uh, was found to have cerebral venous sinus thrombosis as well. Uh, so she was started on heparin and MRI of her brain showed progressive thrombosis with hemorrhagic stroke and her CT abdomen showed progression of the splenic thrombosis. So they did a screening immunoassay for PF4 antibodies, and it was actually negative. But when they did an ELISA for the PF4 antibodies, that was strongly positive. So at that point, she was switched to IVIG with our and her platelet counts increased over the next five days. Um, The authors of this case report note that in the clinical trials for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, there was one 25-year-old man who had a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis uh, that was felt to be unrelated to the vaccine at the time. So after this case report was published on April 14th, uh, Johnson and Johnson actually published a response in the New England Journal on April 16th. And they reported that this twenty five year old man did, in fact end up testing positive for these PF four antibodies and that in their ongoing safety surveillance, they had identified six other cases or six total cases of cerebral venous uh, sinus thrombosis with thrombocytopenia about seven to 14 days after vaccination. And that included the woman from the New England Journal case report. All of the patients um, in the Johnson Johnson cohort were women and they were ages 18 to 49. So because of this, the FDA and CDC recommended a pause on April 13th to review these events Uh, Johnson and Johnson did point out in their response that their adenovirus vector is very different from the one uh, that AstraZeneca uses. Um, So AstraZeneca actually has a chimpanzee adenovirus vector. I don't know if that really matters, but it's interesting. Uh, And they were, um, you know, careful to say that there was insufficient evidence to establish a causal relationship. Uh, On April 23rd, so just a few days ago, the CDC reported that they had identified a total of 15 cases associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, including three deaths. And this is out of 8 million Americans who've received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, The CDC panel voted 10 to 4 uh, to resume use of the vaccine, uh, which will now include a warning. And the FDA also voted to resume the use of the vaccine. So they didn't vote for any restrictions on it. Like they do have restrictions in Europe for AstraZeneca. There's no restrictions, there's just a warning, um, but now you can get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine again. So I just thought this was interesting and something to be aware of because if, if heaven forbid, you did see a patient with a weird clot and thrombocytopenia, and they had recently had either of those vaccines, you definitely would wanna test them for PF4 antibodies and you would wanna use an ELISA test. I think it sounds like the screening immunoassay may not be sensitive enough to pick it up. Um, so get the ELISA and there's some debate as to whether it's safe to use heparin in these folks, since they're, you know, it's not a true heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and and none of these people had had heparin exposure. Um, most people that I read were still recommending not using heparin if you could avoid it. Um, but even some people that did get heparin in these case reports, their platelets actually increased anyway. So it's probably not related to heparin at all. Um, so, what what do you guys think? Uh, what would you tell a patient if if you know they asked you if it's safe to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, especially if maybe this someone is already vaccine hesitant?
2: I mean, it's always a risk benefit calculation, right? Um, that's what I always say, anyway. And and honestly, I'd, I mean, so yeah, what are we saying? For J&J, 6 out of 8 million or 8 out of 8 million? 15 out of 8 million. 15 out of 8 million. So um, the risk of COVID continues to outweigh the risk of VIT. Isn't that what we're calling this?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay.
2: Um, so that's what I would tell them. But also, you know, would sort of instruct young, otherwise healthy women to, you know, pay attention for signs and symptoms of weird clots. Um, but yeah, I think... Always a risk benefit equation. Benefit still outweighs risks in my mind, but individualized decision.
1: Yeah, and I agree with the risk benefit thing too. I mean, I think it's kind of like natural human psychology. If you're doing something or giving someone a med or something and there's an adverse outcome, that always feels worse than if you do nothing and something bad happens. So I feel like there's something about psychology where people get really upset if they get the vaccine and they're one in a million that this happens versus if they don't do anything and they're unlucky and they get COVID and then something really bad happens. For some reason, it seems like that's way differently in people's minds. And so I would just try to you know, have them look at both of those perspectives.
2: And the equation might and will change over time. I mean, risk of COVID, you know, contracting COVID as more people get vaccinated, presumably is go, it is going down and young, healthy women presumably have a low risk of having serious sequelae from COVID. So, you know, it's not an unreasonable sort of tri- like, like, I don't know exactly where it falls. I think it's still, like I said, on the side of you should get the vaccine. You know, there's also some public health considerations that go into the equation, but you know, I don't know. Well, still a little bit of a shoulder shrug still. I'm glad no
0: one's asked me. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's tough because, you know, when, when you're having this conversation with a young person, like you said, like they're unlikely to get sick from COVID right. Statistically, they're probably going to do fine if they get COVID. And so a lot of them don't want to get vaccinated anyway, right? Like the main reason we want them to get vaccinated is so that we can, you know, approach herd immunity and have enough people vaccinated that this doesn't spread anymore. And so it's kind of hard when, if you frame it that way, you're asking them to get vaccinated to help society at large. And but you may get this like crazy rare blood clot or something. And suddenly they're like, oh, maybe I don't want to help society anymore. Maybe I'll just take my chances. But I mean, luckily there are two other excellent vaccines out there, right? Like I don't think any of us got Johnson and Johnson because it wasn't even available, right? Like I got Pfizer back in December and, you know, there have been some interesting blood clot reports with Pfizer and Moderna. Um, I don't have the numbers, but, even lower. And they weren't as weird as the Johnson and Johnson one and, and not associated with like the thrombocytopenia and things. But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, if someone is like terrified of Johnson and Johnson, at least you have a couple of other options that you can recommend to them. And yeah, I did have, I got, oh,
2: fizz. No, sorry, go ahead. Oh, you, you go ahead. The patho fizz is pretty interesting. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, like I was basically like, oh, I guess I don't really understand HIT. So then I had to (laughs) read about HIT and then I was like, well, I don't, maybe now I understand HIT, but what's VIT and like, yada, yada. So, you know, I mean, you don't want to be an interesting case, but it's
0: interesting. (laughs) Something I didn't realize until I was reading more about this too, was there is an autoimmune uh, form of HIT that has nothing to do with heparin. And it usually presents with uh, lower platelet counts strange clots and then higher uh results on the PF4 antibody test, which is more similar to this. And so this seems to be almost like a subset of this autoimmune, um, you know, thrombotic thrombocytopenia that's totally not related to heparin um, But not, you know, it wasn't a complete new entity. There's 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 something out there already about this. And, and kind of what people recommend for treating it is high dose IVIG and then using alternative anticoagulation. But yeah, I think overall, like you'd hope people wouldn't panic too much, but if you admit somebody and you find that they have one of these weird clots, I do think it's worth testing for. Um, so good to, good to know about, let me what know proportion- if you guys hear about any.
2: Yeah. What proportion of patients are now going to have headaches after J and J? That's the real question. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And so if your patient with J&J is calling in with a headache, I think the first thing I'd do is check a platelet count because if their platelets are normal, they're probably okay. Right. Um, all these people had super low platelets, like in the 20 to 30,000 range. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, people already get headaches from the vaccines, just from the immune response. So <laughs> it does make it a little bit challenging. I can
2: confirm I have antibodies.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: I like got mailed some, you know, statewide survey, epidemiological study thing. So I got tested for the virus and tested for antibodies. I have antibodies. vaccine Congratulations. Work. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Except against all these variants.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it's scary what's happening out there still, but. All right. Well, any, anyone else have anything they need to get off their chest or share with the group?
2: yeah Good. all right thanks well
0: cool. well thanks for joining us natalie it was great to have you
1: yeah that was fun i'm around next week so i'll see you guys at the hospital
0: all right cool all right well we'll uh i don't know when we're doing our next episode the next week or two but yeah stay tuned